name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudato Jesus Christus, welcome to the Meaning of Catholic. I'm joined today by Dr. Levi Russell. Dr. Russell, happy to have you on. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So Dr. Levi Russell is a Catholic convert, Easter 2007. He earned his PhD in economics from Kansas State University. He is interested in promoting Catholic social teaching through applied research and economics education. Levi leads the Local Commerce Promotion Program, and he is the host of the weekly Catholic Economics Podcast. But his greatest achievements include his wife and three children. So, <laughs> Dr. Russell, thanks so much for having on. Today, we're going to continue the conversation about Catholic economics. This is part of a bigger conversation at Meaning of Catholic about America as an idea and as a political economic entity, which has influenced the Roman Catholic Church, especially at Vatican II. Uh, it became the tipping point against the Pion Magisterium's rejection of the French Revolution and sort of an embracing of the American Revolution, as Ratzinger says, as sort of this model of the modern state. So this is part of the bigger conversation because economics has a big role to play in the political, social, modern questions that have been dealt with by the church since the French Revolution. So on Monday, we talked with Eric Sammons about Catholic libertarianism uh, or free market or capitalism, different terms for it and different shades of it. But um, today we're going to talk to Dr. Russell about distributism and talk about what that is, what that means. We'll try to also look at objections to distributism. And then eventually we're also going to have a debate in the future. I have not worked out all the details of that, but we will have a debate on this issue on economics between generally this perspective, a distributist sort of perspective, and generally the free market perspective. So we will have that stay tuned for that part um so we're going to start off dr russell with talking about what books should we read about this topic what what has influenced you and what would you recommend yeah so uh i obviously as my you know in my university uh professor role i'm i i have access to a lot of the the paywalled you know journal articles and stuff like that so if you can find access to uh, the work of Rupert Ederer or um, Bernard Dempsey. Uh, that would be really good. Those are two really good uh, economists who write uh, stuff that, you know, the average person can pick up and, and understand. Um, but on the, the Leo Institute website, so Leonine Institute for Catholic Social Teaching uh, is an organization I'm, uh, I, I've started with a friend um, and we are, are putting out some, uh, some policy papers and all kinds of stuff. Um, but we do have on the website, a Catholic social teaching reading list. It's under the about us section. Um, the first book that I list there is ethics in the national economy by father Heinrich Pesch. Um, and I, and the thing is, is this is a very good book, uh, for someone who just wants to get an economist's view of Catholic social teaching and things like that. I think one of the challenges we have is that uh, certainly Chesterton was not uh, an economist. Uh, Belloc was a little bit more, um, I guess, tuned that way. 
so, you know, we, we get a lot of this distributist uh, ideals from or, or, you know, even policy suggestions uh, from these two men. But there are a lot of other people that, that have great things to say about it. So um, Ethics in the National Economy, it's, it's, it's uh, published by IHS Press. You can buy it from them. You can also get it from Laredo Publications. Um, very reasonable priced uh, 10 or $15 book. Um, and it's and it's a it's a very condensed version of of a lot of different things that Pesh talks about. He talks about the morals, um, you know, the ethics uh, discussion, and he also talks about uh, you know, sort of economic theory and policy and things like that. So um, I would say Economics for Helen is a really good book um, by Hillary Belloc. So that one uh, again is very I think readable, and he he sets it out in in a way that I think an economist would. Um, I mean, we have a whole list of, of things on here. Um, you know, distributism for Dorothy by father Lawrence C Smith. Um, so th there's a lot of things on here that you can check out and I would just say, check out the list. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. I just put the link in the chat. So take a look at that. Right. I'll add it to the show notes. Uh, so let's start off with some basic definitions and branch into the, the theory um, so, Dr. Russell, can you define what you mean by distributism, and let's let's get into what it means. Yeah. So, my my view is that distributism is uh, a concerted effort to faithfully apply Catholic social teaching uh, in our world uh, through policy, you know, from the government uh, at at any level, at all levels, um, through our interactions as. Uh, producers, consumers, merchants, um, and through our actions as, uh, you know, in, in you and I's case, right, the, the heads of families, right, fathers um, and, and mothers and, and children as well, right? So it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, my expertise is in economics, and so that's what I focus on. But, um, you know, I, I think distributism goes beyond just economic policy, but those are the things that, that I'm most interested in um, and that I think need uh, a, a bigger voice today. I mean, there's, there's a lot of work and there are a lot of great people out there. Um, Joseph Pierce is fantastic. Um, and he has, he has a wonderful grasp on sort of the, uh, you know, the, the, the stained glass windows and the gargoyles, right. The, the beauty of Catholic social teaching. But I think when it comes to sort of the hard policy discussions, I think there's, there's, there's a limit on how many people are out there with, you know, uh, with a really strong understanding of economics talking about these issues. Okay. And so nobody can disagree with applying church teaching. Uh, but the, sure. the main critique coming from the Austrian libertarian kind of school is um, that the teachings do not, take into account sufficiently economic law and they, they assert that their theories are economic law and they compare them to the force of gravity and physics and that type of thing. Right. And so that I, well, first of all, I, I think that there is something to say about that because there is, sure. um, there is a certain limit to the church's power. They can't, they can fallibly declare something about a scientific theory. So we, we can all agree right. about that. There's a limit to that. Now, what, what do you say to that objection uh, of applying Catholic social teaching? Right. So there's so many things to say. Uh, the, one of the first things I would say is that, um, you know, th this, this coming from specifically the Austrian school. So when I, when I was in graduate school, I was very interested in Austrian economics. I would say that's probably the reason why I went on to get a PhD because I was so interested in Austrian stuff. 
um, Austrian theory. I read Rothbard's book. I read I read a ton of Austrian stuff. I have a, I have a, an article in an Austrian journal. Um, so I'm I'm pretty well versed in the arguments that are made both popularly and in their academic work. And I would say that um, you know I think I think one of the biggest problems they have is there's sort of a cognitive dissonance because while they want to say that um, you know that, that economics is like you said these laws of nature. It's it's kind of interesting because if if you uh, <laughs> it, that 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 can be juxtaposed against their their um, I guess theoretical problems they have with using mathematics and economics, right? And so if if economics is a law of nature, well then you know to some extent it should mimic uh, you know physics or something or chemistry or biology, you know one of the, some of these disciplines that that use a lot of mathematics. And yet they insist that we don't do that. So uh, Rupert Rupert Editor Editor um, makes this point very well in a book review of Tom Wood's book uh, that I believe was on your previous stream this week. Um, right. Yeah, the Culture Wars review. Yeah, that he did, the, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, in two thousand five. So you can read that, and he it's a very very long book review, but. Um, but he does make that point that it's, you know, it's kind of strange. And then, you know, we also have this idea that uh, there are a lot of uh, folks in the Chicago school, which is considered a free market school, but it, but it's, it's quite different from the Austrian folks. And, and we have people that were very well known in the, in the Chicago tradition who didn't really want to call it a science. They called it a discipline, right? They, they called it, uh, you know, they wanted to treat it more like sociology or something like this, right? Where, uh, where we're trying to use logic um, in it in its place, um, but 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 that the these so-called laws are are not fundamental. They're um, they're contingent on the the legal framework that we put around things. And so when you know we we often hear, oh well, you can't uh, you know you can't implement this policy because that policy, uh, you know, it goes against the law of supply and demand. And it's like, well, okay, I, I understand what you're saying, but really all you're saying is that there's a moral trade-off um, according to the, the law of supply and demand. And that, you know, this is this is all predicated on the system we live in, but it doesn't, it's not dependent on, um, you know, something fundamental like, you know, neutrons and electrons. Okay. And I, I, let me ask a specific question. I do want to get into some of the basics of the Catholic social teaching but I want to field one more sort of objection because this is quite a, so this is sort of on the epistemological level where we're, we're gathering the Catholic social teaching and we're asking, how do we apply that? What do we apply? And so to give a, an example that Tom Woods brings up in his book, for example, is talking about the just wage. So right. I think we could probably agree that just wage is at least a teaching, but the Austrians will say, well, that's against the economic law because, and then they, they, they launch into a prexological uh, example, and they say, right. well, if the, if the just wage is imposed on an employer, he has to raise his wages on all these 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 uh, you know employees, and then mm -hmm. he's forced to then fire some because you know this is an economic mm -hmm. law. Now he has more expenses, so then he has to. So basically, the point is, which I think is there's a logical simplicity to it. I think um, maybe you disagree, but I, I think there's a logical simplicity to say that well, if, if we're forcing a an employer to raise their expenses basically they're mm -hmm. going to have to cut costs and cut employees so there the right. the idea is just wages increase unemployment and that's their an economic law so would you mm -hmm. agree with that analysis as an example of applying an economic law to basically dissent if you will or 
disregard Catholic social teaching on the just price, for example, just wage. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that characterization because I think what's what's actually happening is there's a moral uh, there's a moral premise underpinning what they're saying. Um, and, and there's there's a set of assumptions and, and typically right so if you if you push that a little bit then what you get the objection that you get is that well everybody what do you want everyone to be poorer um and so that's um you know that that's typically the objection you would get and i would just say you know i mean to to address that specifically yeah so i, I just had a column and uh just had a piece in in the washington examiner talking about uh the just wage and, and a family wage um and so would the the implementation of a family wage which would um essentially make make the pay of a full-time employee uh, dependent on the number of, of sort of tax dependents that they have in their in their household, right? So you and I, uh, my wife doesn't work outside the home, so I have four dependents, right? So that my salary would be adjusted based on the number of dependents I have. Um, and so, you know, would this kick people out of the labor force? Well, sure, and, and rightly so, right? I mean, the, the point of the policy is to have one earner per family, right? Um, you know, rerum novarum starts off uh, Ram Novarum, you know, the, the one of the what we would consider to be the, the the founding document of Catholic social teaching. Now, obviously, you know, there are other writings that are relevant, but you know, this is this is thought of as kind of starting Catholic social teaching. And the first thing he talks about is uh, you know a man earning a wage. And so, you know, the family again is the fundamental unit of society. And so, who cares if you know things shift around in labor markets? I mean, is it going to make some people poor? Sure. But we can deal with those distributional issues on the back end. Um, you know, markets aren't infallible, right? Markets come up with arrangements that don't uh, meet the standards of justice. So, okay. And let me yeah. ask a, a corollary question as an aside, because I've, I've heard this. Uh, Ripperger asserts it, and so does E. Michael Jones. And he says okay. that feminism, had the, all the Marxists and, and others who are pushing women to the workforce and basically forcing them to leave the home, many, many really against their will, um, has basically caused a decrease in wages so that there's a lot, there's far more workers. So therefore the wages yeah. go down. Is that, is that an accurate yeah. assertion? Right. So, you know, it's, it, this is one of the challenges of empirical economics, right? Is so how do we, how do we look at inflation over time? Um, how do we evaluate, uh, the, the usefulness of a wage, right? Do we look at it at the household level? Um, or do we look at it at the individual level? And, you know, if we have things like, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren 15 years ago wrote a book about the, the two income trap where she, you know, she didn't like the fact that, uh, you know, the, that both parents had to work, you know, and, and, and her whole thesis was about some very specific academic point or whatever. But, but it was really interesting, you know, today, because today you would hear Tucker Carlson talking about that. Um, so if you want to get, I think, a, a deeper dive into this, what I would suggest is reading Oren Cass's uh, paper. It's fairly short. I think it's seven or eight pages long uh, called The Cost of Thriving Index. So just Google Cost of Thriving Index. And what he does is he shows you, okay, he, he says, okay, here's a basket of things that we think everyone needs, right? Everyone needs, uh, you know, or, or these, this is a basket of things that everyone could afford fairly easily about 50 years ago. Um, you know, education, uh, housing, uh, things like this, right? A, a vehicle uh, so that we can get around, right? So it's very much, um, you know, in the sort of modern perspective, right? We're not talking about, you know, three acres and a cow or something, right? 
Um, and what he does is he tracks the cost of those things, that basket, right? And so this is sort of in place of some kind of inflation measure that, you know, we, we can always have uh, squabbles about inflation measures. Um, so he uses this, the, the, the cost of this basket of goods over time, and he compares it with uh, the, the, the average male wage or median, median male wage or something like that. Um, and he, he, he shows male wages, female wages, and, uh, you know, sort of the, the household uh, combination wage um, and just shows that the, the ability of the average man or the average woman or the average, indeed, the average family to afford this basket of goods has declined over time. And so really, it doesn't matter what your standard is in terms of um, uh, in terms of income, right? Whether you're talking about men, women or, or you know, uh, the, uh, the quote unquote average household, right? The, the ability to afford this basket of what we would, you know, consider to be some kind of a modern necessity has declined. And so, you know, to me, it's, um, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing we need to be talking about. And, and, you know, Orrin Cass has provided the data on this. Uh, so it's, it's, and it was attacked. Oh my goodness. It was attacked vehemently by the libertarians. I mean, it's like every day for three weeks, there was somebody coming out with a think pace trying to take down, you know, Cass's paper. Has there been any substantial answering of that uh, assertion of cast? <laughs> so I mean, from my point of view, you know, the only, I mean, it, uh, what happens in economic debates like this is it always comes back to some kind of ethical complaint, right? So the complaint is not um, about whether or not these sorts of things should be affordable. It's always, um, or whether or not, whether or not his data is wrong, right? His data is perfectly fine. Um, normally it's like, well, you know, why, you know, why do you think people should have to have a car? Why do you think people should, you know, be able to buy a house? I mean, and this to me is just, it's insane. You know, you read, you read Leo, uh, the 13th or you read Pius the 11th and they're talking about how, you know, the system needs to be, um, you know, that the system should be built on the idea that, that people should have these things. Um, and, and so the only, the only, I guess, economic objection I, I've seen is that, you know, that this basket of good is no, this basket of goods is no better sort of a measure of inflation or whatever, or, or this cost of thriving than uh, traditional inflation measures are. And, and I think that's wrong because the, 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 the main problem with inflation measures is that they have to somehow adjust for what they call quality. Okay. So we have something called a hedonic adjustment. And so it's like, you know, if you, if you bought a TV in 1995, right. Let's say that TV costs 500 bucks, right. Well, you buy, you go out and buy a TV today and you know, maybe the average TV is 200 bucks today. Right. But there's a sense in which a TV 25 years ago is a different thing from a TV today, right? Even though they sort of provide the same general service, you know, the quality is different, you know, the quality of this picture is different and all these sorts of things, right? And so if you if you take that um, that that quality adjustment very seriously, there there's sort of mathematical ways to try to tease that out. And I mean, personally, I just don't think they're very good. And so looking at things that, um, you know, where the quality is sort of not constant, but you know, the average house, the median house shouldn't be completely different today than it was 50 years ago in terms of, um, you know, its relation to everyone else's houses, right? Like if, if the average person should be able to, you know, afford, could afford a house in 1970, well, there's no reason why the average person couldn't afford a house today, 
right? There's, there's no good reason for that. And so policy should address that if, you know, that's something we think that is important. And of course we do. That's interesting. I, I, I think I may have heard of the CAS study once, but um, one of the, the constant uh, uh, assertions of the Austrian free markets is that, you know, there there was, I think there they make reference to one study, I think it was over the past 15 years or something like that, where it talked about global poverty, starvation poverty had been cut in half. You're probably familiar sure. with the study. Um, and so there's a, there is a great, and there's the overall assertion of that the industrial revolution just sort of raised everyone's standard of living, which mm -hmm. is hard to disagree with. I, you know, we're all driving cars instead of buggies and all that. So, mm -hmm. um, what would you say is the cause for Cass's assertion that the basics, what we might call, I don't know what we call might call the basics of life mm. are, are harder to acquire because it appears, I mean, it just as a non-economist myself, I, I could probably, I would right. concede the point, hey, yeah, it seems like it's easier for me to get a car than it was in 1950 or 1920. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the reasons for these? The yeah, so, so I think I think here is is where, again, we're going to get, uh, we're going to get this accusation of socialist leveled at us. Um, and I think not appropriately. So you said a lot of different things there. So you know, first of all, you know, the CAST study is only addressing the U.S. and, and fairly recently, right? Um, if you're talking about, you know, developing nations and stuff like that, uh, you know, these, these places have, um, you know, tremendous challenges to deal with in terms of, uh, you know, sort of going through the process that much of the West has gone through over the last 200 years or so with industrialization and then, uh, you know, all of the things that sort of come after that. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think it's probably true to say that, um, I mean, th this is the thing, right? It's, does capital, does capital accumulation, right? So I, the only thing I would say is that, you know, the industrial revolution allowed for us to have this, this capital accumulation, right? Uh, at a, at a more rapid pace than in the past. Um, and you'll, you'll see things from, um, you know, Deidre McCloskey that shows the, the little hockey stick jump, you know, everything jumped up in, in 1800 or whatever, or 1900, um, you know, and, and these are all references to sort of material well-being on average, right? So um, this, uh, number one, is not necessarily uh, a, a good way of describing the, the whole person, right? I mean, are we better off as a whole person, right? So, but putting that aside... You know, and I actually did a show with uh, with a friend of mine who's a philosopher um, on uh, you know a lot of these things that have actually improved our lives, right? So, so what you'll say is, well, you know, if, if we we level these criticisms right from from Chesterton or something, it's like, oh, well, do you want to undo the the industrial revolution? Um, and so I would say, well, well, first of all, no, because that's not possible. Um, but but you know what is it about the industrial revolution that's so good, right? And so people say, oh well, vaccines and you know the discovery of electricity and internal combustion, right? And the thing is, is these inventions don't, you know, they may seem to correlate with this massive increase in capital accumulation over a shorter period of time, but really they're all sort of accidental, right? I mean, the 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 discovery of electricity did not depend on how much capital we had, right, or the the use of it. Um, the, 
you know, capital accumulation, the speed of a capital accumulation has nothing to do with, uh, you know, the discovery of, of certain vaccines. It has nothing to do with, uh, you know, the, the, the invention of the uh, internal combustion engine, right? Now, now you, may need, you may say that, well, you need the Industrial Revolution to make those things cheaper. And I would say, look, if you read uh, Pesha's book, he flat out says, look, progress in economics is a good thing for us. There's nothing wrong with progress in economics. The point is that we have to submit it to the moral decorations of the church. And when we're talking about, you're saying, well, you know, a car today is much cheaper than it was back in, you know, whenever. I mean, I would say, well, I don't know about that, right? So, I mean, Henry Ford, the, the, the average person on his assembly line could afford to buy those cars, right? And these days, you've got to have a six-year loan or a seven-year loan, right, um, at five, six, seven percent interest, right, for the average person. Um, to be able to afford this thing. I mean, that's crazy. That's, that's not even close to what, uh, you know, things were like 50 years ago. Right. And so a lot of this, a lot of this underpinning this, I think is debt and usury and the way that messes with markets, uh, to a large degree. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I just have a smattering of thoughts there and it's, and it's such a, it, it, there's so many things that go into this, right? So if you talk about the international, uh, you know, or, or, you know, we, we think about, uh, uh international aid policies. We think about developing countries and what's going on with them. Uh, you know, Arthur Brooks had a documentary a couple of years ago about, uh, you know, how foreign aid was a bad thing and how it was harming these small countries uh, because, you know, they, they were losing their local markets. And hey, you know, that's, that's totally a good criticism. But the reality is that the, you know, sort of international capitalism Right where we're, where we're, you know, foreign direct investment and and all these factories and all this stuff. I mean, that's also harming those economies, right? It's also harming those people's uh, sort of, uh, you know, local production of their own stuff, and and it's harming their own culture. It's changing the way people do things, right? I mean, uh, up until very recently, you know, rice was not a staple of you know, Central America. And now it's like everybody has to eat rice because that's what the U.S. has been dumping on them for the last 30 years, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah I, 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 don't... I, can, I can see that uh, critique of the big business. That's that's something that E. Michael Jones talks about in the export of pornography. Um, I, right. I spent time in Egypt where the garbage dwellers had to move to the city, but they couldn't sell anything because all of their, oh, you know, being becoming an entrepreneur is very difficult in the third world because you you're competing with these large big corporations who can undercut your prices without right. without a second thought so yeah. it's it's uh yeah i think the big business the critique is there um let me get into more about what because we kind of talked a little bit about the austrians let's talk about more about what distributism is and what is not you basically gave a general mm -hmm. definition of applying catholic social teaching can you maybe um go down some of the basics, non-negotiables in your mind of Catholic social teaching and distinguish that from what are, are there gray areas in that? What is it not? Yeah. So I think, I think it's, it's important to get the fundamentals right. And when we're talking about markets and economics, um, you know, one of the big uh, fundamentals here is, is this idea of freedom and liberty, right? And what I think happens is we often get, uh, we're often told that, we're supposed to kind of adopt the uh, enlightenment liberal perspective on freedom and liberty. Right. And I think, and I think the, the best way sort of rhetorically to understand this um, is that um, 
you know, so who, who is, who is the most free being, right? Well, the most free being is God, right? Uh, and so as the church teaches us, right, in the catechism uh, and, and, and in many writings, you know, previous to our, our current catechism, the church teaches us that, you know, that we have, um, you know, that liberty, we, we should have the right to do what is right, right? And so what happens with this liberal definition of freedom is it's like, it becomes this negative conception, right? It's like, well, you have the freedom, um, you know, to, to do uh, whatever you want, as long as you're not harming someone else, right? Well, that's, that's not the church's position, right? The church's position is, no, you have to follow the laws of God, right? We have to listen to God. God is our ultimate authority on uh, what is right and wrong, not, um, you know, whatever you happen to be able to do that day, right? So I, I, I very much, am, I very much think that it's, it's, it's important for us to understand that this whole idea of the non-aggression principle is wrong from the get-go, um, it's completely against, uh, you know, the, the, the church's teaching and, and the biblical teaching on the authority of the state, right? The, the state has authority. The state is not just a group of guys um, who, you know, this uh, in economics, you know, it's, it's the, the stationary bandit or, you know, all of these horrible, uh, you know, perspectives. You know, can, can governments do wrong things? Sure. But, are, are, you know, do we, do we apply the, uh, the non-aggression principle to the state? No, of course not. The state has authority. Um, so these, these things I think are important for us when we're, we're starting to understand how to apply Catholic social teaching. So we need to get that first. I, I think we need to get that understanding first. But second of all, I think, um, you know, when we, when we look at these, most of the, the social encyclicals come to us, you know, from the past 140 years or so, 130 years or so. And, you know, so it's, I, I don't understand why we can't take these things, you know, fairly literally. I mean, you know, um, I have a quote here from, uh, let's see, this is Pius, Pius XI. So this is from Quadragesimo Anno from, uh, you know, I don't know, 1931, right? Yeah. yeah. So every effort must therefore be made that fathers of families receive a wage large enough to meet ordinary family needs adequately. But if this cannot always be done under existing circumstances, social justice demands that changes be introduced as soon as possible. I mean, what, what is so esoteric about that? What, I mean, how, how is that not just, you know, plain, right? <laughs> if, if, if this, you know, here's the condition, right? Here's the principle. We want fathers of families to receive a wage large enough to meet ordinary family needs. Okay. And, and that tells us a lot of things, right? It says ordinary family needs. Okay. Well, we can't make, um, we can't make references to, oh, well, you know, just, you know, you're the poorest person in America, but you're the, you know, you're very wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Sure, but that's not the society I live in, right? I don't live in a developing country. I live in the U.S., right? So what what what, what determines ordinary to me is what is ordinary where I live, right? Um, so that's the principle, right? Because I think your interview on Monday was, you know, there was a lot of this discussion about principles and applications. Well, the application is, uh, you know, come up with a policy that meets this principle, right? And don't mess around. <laughs> um, and so yeah. Is that, is that difficult? Are there trade-offs? You know, it's like Milton Friedman said, um, you know, there are no panaceas, right? Uh, um, everything's a trade-off. Maybe that was Thomas Sowell. Anyway, um, the point is, you know, are there going to be trade-offs? You bet. But is, is that, uh, you know, some kind of esoteric statement that we need to interpret or, you know, or whatever? No, it's pretty plain. I mean, this was, you know, not even a hundred years ago. It's a very easy thing to understand. Um, and so, 
you know, I would say just wage and just price. I think those are two things that are uh, poorly understood. I think it's easier to understand just wage, probably. Just price is, is, is more difficult. And I think there's a lot of academic work that needs to be uh, sort of mainstreamed so that, that, that the average Catholic can understand that well. Um, I would say usury is a, is a massive issue, um, partly because I think even, even in the church's teaching, it has been de-emphasized over the last 200 years or so. Um, so, I, I mean, to me, those are three really big issues um, that, that I think we need to, to keep track of. And, and we really need to have discussions about those and forget about talking about, you know, three acres and a cow and, and, and stuff like this. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's funny you bring up those three because um, I know that uh, just price and just wage was a part of different uh, teachings sort of by custom, I think, back in mm-hmm. the Guild Age and whatnot. But usury sure. has been explicitly condemned by the church since at least the Council of Nicaea in 325. And mm-hmm. all along, it's. I, I was trying to think of a more consistent condemnation of a social ill than usury there. Uh, right. So, and I, there's um, the last big encyclical or, or magisterial act was fixed prevent 1745. Um, so can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about usury? Uh, yeah. Maybe you could define usury and talk about wh- why you think it's, it's a problem. Um, sure. And maybe expand on that a little bit, please. Yeah, so we're we're going to talk about the just price stuff a little later, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go okay, right, okay good deal. Play. So I'll I'll save my my one pushback on you for that here for a, a little bit later. Okay, so yeah, cool. usury. Uh, it's very interesting. We just uh, the Leonine Institute. We just put out a policy paper. It's it's a little bit long. It's about twenty five pages long, but it's double spaced and all that. Um, and the three of us really uh, dug into what we thought were you know, the, the most popular writing in the Catholic world on usury. Uh, and we also tried to dig into other resources that seemed to have been ignored by a lot of writers. And so what we attempted to do, I think, was to correct the record on some of the concepts that are discussed a lot with usury. And we also tried to um, correct a lot of the record on sort of the economic theory part. And that was kind of my role. Um, and then to sort of... Um, and then to sort of say, well, okay, well, what's next? What do we actually do? Um, you know, what are the policies or how, how do we, how do we go about making this situation better? Right. So if you want to find that, go to leoinstitute.org and check out policy papers. Um, and so it's, it's the top one under there. Um, so yeah, usury, right. So Vix prevent 1745, like you said, Pope Benedict XIV. Um, I I'd like to call him the terror of usurers, but I don't know if that's uh, a sensible <laughs> thing to do, but uh, yeah. So in, uh, I believe it was 18 sometime in the 1820s, 1830s, the Holy office applied Vicks prevent to the whole church, right? So it was originally a letter to um, the Italian clergy uh, dealing with some issues that they had, uh, you know, dealt with there. But, about 80 years later, they're sort of looking at it again. And I mean, it was a pretty extensive study. If you read the, the text of Vicks Prevent, it's very short. Um, and it's on papalencyclicals.net if you want to read the whole thing. Um, it, it's, it, what it is, is they're, they're, they're trying to, the Pope is trying to help the folks in Italy and, and then later on, you know, the rest of the world to understand how to apply usury uh, you know, the, the condemnations of usury in the situations they're dealing with. 
Um, and so, you know, Vicks prevent it. Uh, there's a lot of weird language that's, that's hard for us to understand these days, I think. Um, and so when you dig in, what you, what you essentially find is that there, that, that Vicks prevent it, uh, condenses down a lot of sort of the late medieval or whatever, uh, whatever that period would be called. Um, you know, their, their perspective on what is usurious and what isn't. Okay. And so what essentially they come up with is if you have a, if you're sharing in the risk of some kind of investment, right? Cause we're using very different terms today. If you're sharing in the risk of some kind of investment, right? In a business transaction, then your uh, then then whatever you know then if you make some kind of just profit from that right so profit in general can be made on uh, some kind of investment where you assume the risk and and this is the thing is that Father Pesh in his book that I just mentioned at the at the beginning of the show he he agrees with this right and he's interpreting this and he's saying you can take out an annuity or you can enter a partnership for a business right you can deposit funds with a bank right. Um, and in, in the paper, we go through a lot of legal scholarship from Brian McCall. He has a fantastic paper uh, on usury. And we go through that and kind of explain that sort of in, in economics and finance terms um, that, that he's, he's showing us what the medieval church was, was talking about or, or what the scholastics were talking about when they were talking about usury and what the Pope said. And you know, I, the one thing I want to quibble with is, is you know, you said, you know, just wage and just price were sort of these practices. But uh, if you read this book, uh, George O'Brien, uh, an essay on medieval economic teaching, and one of the things that he makes very clear in this book is that the med medieval law and the practice during that time was heavily influenced by the church. Right. So it's not as if you you get the, you know, the arrow didn't run the other way. Right. The, the medieval practice was influenced by the church. It wasn't that, you know, medieval practice was just sort of there and the church just sort of wrote it down like, it, you know, like they were big fans of it or something. Right. So I, I think that's one of the important things we get from this discussion of usury is that, you know, we need to go farther back in time to understand, you know, what was what was considered wrong and what wasn't. Um, so one of the things with usury we get into is the, so if we're really talking about a loan, right, a loan, um, where I give you money and I'm not taking any risk on an investment, or I'm just lending you money so that you can buy food or buy clothing or buy a house, right? A consumption item. Um, it, it's not just for me to earn interest on this, right? Because what I'm lending you money, right? What I'm lending you is not, is not productive in and of itself, right? Money is not productive. If I, and the example is if you, if you see uh, the merchant of Venice, right? Um, you know, Shylock's ewes and, and rams are, are productive, right? If we sort of put them in a, in a, in a pen over there and we leave them alone, you know, well, you know, the natural process is we're going to have, you know, some more sheep, right? <laughs> but if I put a hundred bucks in the drawer, um, you know, it's no different today than it was 500 years ago or 1500 years ago, right? If I put five bucks in the drawer and come back a week later, there's still going to be five bucks there, right? So a loan is when I lend you money, right? And we make this distinction uh, in the in the paper. We talk about, you know, if I were to come and, and lend you a, a hammer, right? That's a completely different thing, right? Now we're talking about a rental arrangement. That's not a loan, right? They're, they're distinct things, right? A loan is a loan of money, right? So, um, so we've got this risk concept, right? So we're talking about a business loan, 
Um, well, a business loan today is very different from an arrangement where I'm sharing risk, right? So I used to teach finance uh, in, at, a, at a college. And, um, you know, this is one of the first things you talk, you talk about, right? So if, um, you know, when, when, we're, when we're talking about uh, loaning, uh, you know, debt versus equity, right? So lent, borrowing as a business versus someone investing and becoming an owner in the business, right? Well, the owner of the business is, um, you know, th their their profit or their return they receive is dependent on the success or failure of the business itself, right? What we would call the underlying, uh, the underlying real thing, right? Whereas in a loan, um, you know, the money you earn on that loan is, is, is an expense, right? I mean, ask an accountant, right? It's an expense. It's not dependent on the success of the business, right? And it's normal sort of the, you know, the day-to-day -day of that business, the bank is going to get the return that was specified in their contract, right? And so something in VIX Prevent is very important is we talk about, you know, intrinsic to the contract is a, is, is this, this phrase is fussed over like crazy with some of the folks who think that, uh, that, that interest is allowable on loans. Um, and, you know, of course that is intrinsic to the contract, right? It's in the contract. It says, I, I'm going to pay, you know, 3% per year, you know, with monthly compounding or something, right? Um, that is in the contract. So, uh, another thing we address in the paper is this idea of, um, uh, well, the, usually the term that's used is lucrum cessans, and I'm not, I don't know, I, I, I know German, I don't know Latin, so, you know, my pronunciations are bad, but but this idea of profit ceasing, right? And so what we've done here, or what a lot of people have done, uh, tragically, I think, is they have equated this idea of, of lucrum cessans, in other words, the, the stopping of profit, right? We, they've equated that with what we call in economics, opportunity cost. So, the idea, um, according to McCall, in the history of uh, you know this term and its use in legal scholarship, it simply means that if let's say you loan me money, right? So and I'm supposed to pay you back in two weeks, right? So if I don't pay you back in two weeks, I mean we've got a problem there, right? Because maybe you needed that money because you know you got a I don't know you got to buy your daughter a dress or something, right? And if I'm not, if I don't come forth with that money at, at the agreed upon time, well, that messes up all your plans, right? And, you know, of course, I mean, there's there's some amount of justice in the fact that we agreed to this, right? Um, and, and the fact that I'm breaching that agreement is, is sort of a, an offense against you, right? Uh, it's an offense against the contract and the agreement we made. So lucrum cessans or, or damnum emergens, I think, is the, is the other term. And it's, it's kind of like... A, you know, profit ceasing or, you know, someone, someone, um, you know, not allow profit to emerge. Right. Um, these things are in the, in the language of Vix Prevenit, not uh, intrinsic to the contract. Right. So this is different, right? If I'm, if I, if I'm supposed to pay you back in two weeks, right. And again, you're not asking for interest, right. Because that would be intrinsic to the contract. Right. So that's, that's condemned as usury. Okay. But if, uh, you know, two weeks, I don't, I show up and I don't have the money. Well, when I finally pay you back, I owe you more, right? Because I, 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 it was against, it was, you know, I, 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 I breached our contract to some extent, right? So this very simply is um, where we go with understanding usury, right? Usury is the taking of interest on a loan period, end of story, 
Okay. Now, how do we interpret things, you know, language from 400 years ago into today? Well, I think we try to do that um, very plainly for a lay audience. Um, and I say lay audience relative to a professional economist, right? Um, in that paper. Um, so that there's, I think we want it to be a reference. We want it to be something you don't have to read the whole thing all the way through, but you know, we've got some nice headings in there for you to be able to grab. Oh yeah. I wanted to talk about um, opportunity costs, right? So, so yeah, let me finish my thought there. So the notion was that, you know, by me, that, that, that Lucrum Sessans or Damnum Emergens wasn't uh, me not forthcoming with the payment at the end of the loan, right? And this is McCall's specific example about what this meant, okay, in his legal writing. So what, what, what some folks have tried to do, and, and one of them is um, the very popular blog, Zippy Catholic, uh, you know, rest in peace, Zippy. So we're not sp speaking of ill of the dead or anything, but, um, you know, I think there's a mistake made there in that there's this, um, and, and Zippy doesn't do this, but a lot of people do. Um, in fact, Zippy's very good on this specific part, but I think he makes some other mistakes. Um, but on this idea of Lucrum Sessans is, you know, what, what folks try to do is they equate that with opportunity cost, right? So it's like, well, you lent to me. So that means you couldn't do something with that specific money in some other investment, right? And what we say is that, you know, this is not opportunity cost, right? There, there's a very different concept here between the fact that you, you gave me some money instead of putting it in the stock market, right? Let's say, okay, so that's, that's opportunity cost, right? It's like, what was the next, the highest valued next best alternative, right? So if you gave me a hundred bucks, uh, you know, to do whatever I needed to do instead of putting it in the market, right? So if you, so the idea behind, you know, opportunity costs as justifying interest is that, okay, well, if, if I, because I lent to you, well, you owe me, right? A return that's close to what I could have gotten in the market, right? You see what I'm saying? And then we, we make all these adjustments for, uh, you know, risk and all these different things. Fine. And when we say risk, we're talking about uh, sort of risk of default, not risk of the underlying, you know, business. Um, or, you know, yeah, again, it's default risk. It's not, it's not the other, the risk I was talking about before. So we have this challenge where, um, you know, we have these people trying to equate this. And what, what I think, I mean, Zippy does a great job. And I think in our paper, we also mentioned this is that this whole idea of opportunity cost as justifying, um, you know, additional payment on a loan is condemned. And, and Zippy's point is very sort of Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, very, very much in, in, in line with Thomas Aquinas. He says, you know, that, um, you know, this is not a real thing. It's not an ontologically real thing, right? It's just, it's just a counterfactual. Well, I mean, you know, the, the counterfactual is no more, uh, you know, is only morally relevant if the underlying moral principle makes it so, right? And in this case, it's not, right? So lucrum sessans is not opportunity cost. They are not the same thing. Uh, lucrum sessans is me reneging on the contract. It's not something intrinsic to the contract. Okay, so... The and this is difficult. <laughs> such a difficult topic, unfortunately, yeah, because yeah, it is. and it, it there and it's unfortunate that that it's that it's complex because everybody yeah. who yeah. lives in America or Europe is going to interact with some sort of interest, yeah. and so it's very important that we understand this. But it's a shame that it's such a complex topic. So, yeah, I sent the that particular paper to the chat. Take a look at that, um, yeah. and. Uh, 
let me try to boil it down if I'm if I can yeah, try to do great. this. Um, so, Long-winded professor here, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of great detail here. So, if I can understand, so what is meant by intrinsic is basically all things being equal. There's no particular loss to the the loan the um, creditor except for his money per se. He's giving his money. He's loaning that. Mm -hmm. So that's the only loss in consideration at all. Putting interest on that that is intrinsic. Whereas all these other types of losses, which could be uh, detrimental to your arrangements or whatever, um, would you consider it to be? Would you consider that explanation to be? A distinction that would that would work here yeah i would say so and, and this is another thing that mccall says right and so he's he's very much writing as a lawyer so you can kind of see that when you read it when you read his paper um which is available uh freely there's, there's no paywall for that paper so that's really good um and there's a link in the in in our publication to that so um yeah so the the thing is is what what vix prevented does it says there's something intrinsic to the contract and there's something that is not intrinsic to the contract or extrinsic, right? So it's outside the contract, right? So what they say is that you can you can receive money, right? If you're the lender, you can receive money above the amount lent for reasons that are not intrinsic to the contract, okay? And so what do we mean by not intrinsic to the contract? What we mean is me paying you back late, right? So if you lent me money, the contract just says, you know, Timothy loans Levi a hundred bucks and Levi pays Timothy back in two weeks, right? That's the contract. If, if anything in that contract says, and then Levi also pays another five bucks or whatever, right? That is condemned as usurious, right? Period. And that today is what we call interest. That is interest, right? So if, if, um, if then I'm, you know, doing something beyond the contract, right? Extrinsic to the contract, not intrinsic. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not paying you back, right? If I don't pay you back at the end of the contract, I mean, what, what else could be relevant to a contract, right? Uh, to a loan contract, right? If I don't pay you back on time, well, okay, that because that's not intrinsic to the contract, me paying you extra because I was late, right? What do we call that in modern finance, right? We call that a late fee, right? We call that, uh, uh, you know, um, yeah, we call it a fee, right? Mm -hmm. It's not interest. It's a fee. It's, it's totally different. They're not the same thing. Um, you know, and, and if you decide, right, Timothy decides he's, uh, you know, he's very good at, um, you know, sort of doling out money, right, uh, and then receiving it back. So, you know, then we have the, the issue of ladder and five um, um, bringing about something called the Montes Pietatis. And again, uh, German, not uh, not Latin. But the issue is, you know, if we, if we want to have an institution that is going to dole out some loans to people, you know, sort of how is it going to operate if it can't recoup the cost of doing business, right? So in this case, um, you know, again, uh, we, we would have to, <laughs> we would probably have to consult, uh, you know, a canonist on this. But I think, I think what we, what's interesting about the Montes Pietatis is essentially what they're doing is they're operating on fees, right? So if, if I borrow money from, you know, the Timothy Flanders, Timothy Flanders, Montes Pietatis or whatever, um, you know, you can recoup the cost of, you know, shuffling the paper around or whatever, right? The things that you got to do to run this operation. But that doesn't mean you can charge me, you know, 29% interest. Okay. And here's the other thing too, is that the most common, and I, I don't see this a lot in Catholic circles, but the most common misunderstanding of the term usury is that 
it is a certain amount of interest, right? It's a certain rate of interest, right? VIX per minute explicitly in the clearest possible terms condemns this idea that it has absolutely nothing to do with the rate of interest charged, it has nothing to do with that. What it has to do with is interest charged, right? Well, and let me ask one last question just because this is sure. such a relevant topic to many families. Um, I'm going to give you three things and you tell me whether or not they're usurious and I'll give you all three now okay. and you can break it down. So sure. one credit card, two car or mortgage loan, three, a checking account. Right. So, um, let's see uh, credit card. Yes. Because, um, again, in the contract, right. you get a, you get a contract for a credit card. Uh, there is an interest rate stated there. So, um, Yes. And, 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 and see, this is the thing too, is there's no risk, right? I mean, for, for the most part, people are using credit cards for consumption. They're not using them for businesses, right? So there's not even any underlying risk, right? That Father Pesh talks about. There's not even any underlying risk to talk about anyway, right? It's just, you know, I get a credit card and I buy a fridge, right? Well, there's no risk there, right? I mean, you know, I'm not creating fridges. I'm using a fridge, right? Yeah. So um, and let me let me just clarify that for the viewers. So so you're saying that the credit card company does not have a risk with right. with loaning if, you money. If I was like, let's say, let's say there's the Timothy Flanders, uh, you know, investment agency, right? <laughs> and and let's say I'm a fridge maker. Okay. If you give me a credit card, right? that charges me interest and I use that credit card to make purchases for my business, right? That's usury. And, and the reason for that is because intrinsic to the contract, right? In the contract is stated that I have to pay interest and you as the lender, right? In, in modern finance, you as the lender do not take any risk on the underlying business, right? You're not right. taking any risk on the manufacturing of, you know, I'm supposed to pay you interest every month or every quarter or whatever, no matter what. Right. right. And, the, so, and so, my business. Okay. And I can call in the loan. And if you don't pay up, I can then take your, I can use the state to enforce the contract and take away your home or whatever. And this is why sure. um, people quote E. Michael Jones, but he's actually quoting Pesh. Pesh is the one who says that capitalism is a state sponsored usury, which is where that comes right. from. Yeah. So, I mean, we, there's, there's a lot of ink spilled on the internet over this issue of recourse. Um, you know, and, and what happens is we get very specific about, you know, a very specific definition of the term mutuum. Uh, and so then this is all sort of, uh, I think, I think we, we show this in the paper. This is all um, incorrectly exploded into some massive long winded discussion about all the particulars of the loan. But again, Vix Prevenit says very clearly, <laughs> the only way you can receive money over and above the amount you know, the, 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 the amount of the actual loan itself is for something extrinsic to the contract. Right. So it's just, you can't state interest in there at all. Right. So credit cards, definitely usurious. Okay. Your second one was cars or, um, home mortgages, right? So mortgage is actually a technical term for, uh, you know, a, a durable asset and paying out and over time, right. People take out mortgages on their phones all the time. Right. I mean, that, that's what a mortgage is, but yeah. So, so we have to think about this again in the same context, right? Uh, number one, are we dealing with risk? No, we're not dealing with any risk, right? Yeah, yeah. My, my home is for me to live in. My car is for me to drive. It has nothing to do with uh, 
excuse me, some kind of, you know, venture, some kind of entrepreneurial activity that has risk in it, right? So, you know, these, these properties used for consumption, uh, certainly that would be usurious, right? Um, you know, we, we have examples uh, and, and Zippy gets into one of these and I, I would have to find the link as I don't have it on, on the tip of my brain here, but um, Zippy discusses a situation where um, essentially sort of like a feudal kind of situation where there's these rich folks who loan, um, you know, some land and all of this stuff to a group of people, right? And that group of people are supposed to give some of the product to the one who's loaning it, right? So first of all, you can't even really call that a loan because that's, um, that's what in the paper we refer to as a comma datum. Okay. That's, that's me lending you something, right? That's no different than me giving you a hammer for the next couple of days, right? It's just that it's instead of a hammer, it's a house and, and, you know, land and property and, and, you know, productive stuff. Right. Um, so this, this gets misconstrued into thinking that, oh, because it's a productive asset, we can lend on it. Right. So like, let's say, you know, I was borrowing money for a car, but then I was going to use that car in my business. Right. So there's some confusion out there that says that, okay, that is, uh, it's okay to charge interest on that. Again, no, because a loan in today's terms does not share in the risk of the underlying business. It's not sharing in that risk, right? It's an expense, that interest is an expense item. It's not profit sharing. Um, and so then your last example was uh, a savings account, right? So uh, McCall treats this very specifically um, in uh, it, it, when he talks about partnerships, right? So we, we have partnerships these days where, you know, if you don't want to run your business all by yourself, maybe you bring someone in as a general partner or as in some cases, right, as a limited partner, right, to invest money in your business. And, you know, maybe they, you know, a limited partner, you know, they have certain rights and stuff like this, but, you know, that partner is putting money in the business and then they have, again, they are exposed to the risk of the business itself, right? If Timothy Flanders is making refrigerators and I invest in Timothy Flanders refrigerators business, right? And, you know, your business goes belly up. Well, I lose money, right? Because I'm a partner. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, traditionally speaking, in terms of deposit account, you know, if I'm, I mean, watch, it's a, it's a wonderful life, right? If I deposit money with the bank and then there's a run on the bank and the bank loses money, I lost too, right? So I'm sharing in the risk, right? So McCall, I think very correctly puts depositum and that's like, no, again, a German uh, pronouncing Latin. Um, puts that in the same category as this partnership, right? Because you're sharing in the risk. Now, what's what's interesting and specific about that today? Well, we have um, the FDIC, right? The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that insures uh, a certain amount. And I can't remember what the amount is, but maybe a quarter of a million dollars or something like that, insures these deposit accounts, right? And, and, and it doesn't just have to be savings, right? It could be a checking account, right? Um, it insures these things. Um, and so the risk is not, but see, the risk is, you know, that's taking a risk from, from the bank and from you. Right. So I'm not really sure where that puts us right with regard to these things, because you know, who, who's taking the risk now, right. It's essentially that the government's kind of socializing the risk, right. Cause if, if the bank goes under and they make everybody whole, well, you know, I mean, where did that money come from? Right. <laughs> they just, they just, uh, they just print it and inflate, you know, and create inflation and stuff. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, that, that would be my, okay. As That's simple great. as I can get for your <laughs> and and one one point that I I wanted to bring up too here because yeah. St. Thomas does say that 
suffering usury is not a sin, but actively practicing usury is the sin. So, yeah, and I, th I think I think that you know you can get into cases where someone's very imprudent, right, and they're just spending lots of money and and they don't care about the you know taking interest on you know or excuse me uh you know they don't care about credit cards and whatever and they're just blowing money like crazy right so that i think that would be that would fit into some kind of case like just at the very least imprudence right um so I, I think there's something to be said for that and i think also we should say that you know just because you know i'm i'm under some kind of usurious contract doesn't justify me putting that usury on someone else right mm -hmm. so there could be situations like that where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm loaning out, I'm, I'm letting someone use my house and I'm paying for interest on the loan so that I make them pay me, you know, that interest yeah. as well. I just didn't want anybody to get scrupulous about having a mortgage or, or, no. yeah. And the thing it, is, there's no way to have a home without a mortgage yeah, these days. Yeah. These days. Yeah. See, this is, and this is where it goes back to what Pius XI says, right? He says, if this cannot always be done under existing circumstances, social justice demands that changes be introduced as soon as possible. Now he's talking specifically about wages for a family, but I mean, we can apply this to homes as well, right? Well, okay, then come up with some other way to do it, right? This is the only choice you have, right? It's either have a mortgage or pay ridiculously inflated rental prices, right? Mm -hmm. Those are your two options. Both of those are terrible, <laughs> you know? Here's a, here's so, a question on mm -hmm. usury and I'd like to get, get you back to just price and whatever you want to mm -hmm. continue sure. on that. But here's one last question on usury. Uh, what's ex Thomas Keller says, what's, ex what's extrinsic if paying the lent money back late plus a late penalty isn't formally interest, then it's functionally interest. So uh, yeah, obviously you are yeah, paying okay. a little bit more. Why is that not <laughs> yeah. usury? Yeah. Right. So, so we get to, we get to this. Uh, this is, this is a very favored trick of the Austrians, right? Is that we, we, um, we, we become we become very uh, we become very anti-realist, right? So, you know, if if we can say that a fee that you pay a lender is the same thing as interest, right? I mean, I can express it mathematically, right? I can express them all equivalently, ma equivalently mathematically. But the point is, one of them is in the contract and the other one isn't, right? I mean, the contract itself says, um, you know, that you are to pay this much interest, right? Whereas the fee is for breaking the contract, right? If you break the contract, then something happens, right? So just because we can use mathematics to uh, express all these things the same way doesn't mean that that ontologically they're the same thing, right? Okay, absolutely. Okay, um, so I, you said you wanted to get into more just price, just wage, mm -hmm. or any other parts of it you want to get into yeah. to try to explain before we get more questions later. Yeah, so I, I think um, I think the the just wage thing. I mean, we talked a little bit about this, and I think again the the indication, and this is this is one of the problems we have, right? Is that we hear, oh, well, you know, these encyclicals aren't infallible, so we don't have to follow them. And it's like, hey, look, you know, this is pretty consistent stuff. I mean, we're getting the same thing from the popes for the last hundred and forty years. We can't just say that this stuff is something we don't have to listen to, right? Um, and just because there are trade offs, there are just because there are trade offs doesn't mean that the, um, you know, doesn't mean that we should prioritize those trade-offs, right? Uh, GDP growth um, or something like that over the moral precepts that the church is clearly telling us is important, right? So, so the just wage, could that cause, you know, is there, is there a short-term problem where we get 
you know, unemployment issues. We get, you know, businesses trying to, you know, readjust to this and figure out how to respond. Sure. Absolutely. And as one of my friends, one of the co-authors on uh, our usury paper points out, you know, the, in the U.S. there's something like three quarters of a million dollars, I think, either per person or per household in terms of net wealth. Like so net of debt. Right. But yet what what is the average person's actually, you know, like so then find the person in the middle. Right. What is the median person? What is their net wealth? Right. I mean, it could very well be negative these days. Right. So how is that? I mean, again, how is that a just system? It's like, oh, well, that's just the product of the market. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, if that's the case, then forget the market. Like, <laughs> you know, as Pius the 11 says, you know, we got to make changes. Changes should be introduced as soon as possible. Is Pius the 11th socialist? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, so we get into just price and just price is very interesting. Um, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, was, was a just price some kind of, uh, you know, fixed amount, right? So if we, we, we talk about just price and often we hear the, the, the criticism is, oh, well, you know, if you have, if you set the, the price too high or too low, then you, you end up with, uh, with a shortage or with a surplus, right? I mean, these are, this is very econ 101 stuff, right? You draw the supply and demand curves and then you, you know, you put your price floor in or your price ceiling in and you show that, you know, there's a shortage, there's too much, uh, there's too much demand or there's uh, there's a surplus, right? There's too much supply. Um, and so, you know, the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, who cares um, if, you know, for a short period of time, there is a shortage or a surplus. I mean, that's not the end of the world, right? Um, if it's a longer term condition, then we have to start thinking about, okay, are we talking about uh, things that are necessities or are we talking about things that aren't necessities, right? So maybe we should have some kind of bounds, legal bounds, around the prices of things that are necessities. And uh, as, as Pesh notes in his book uh, that I've been plugging, um, the, the, the just price is not a fixed amount. It's a range um, that's allowed, uh, again, for typically for necessities, right? So it's... Um, yeah, if you read Dempsey's work on this, um, there's some discussion about, you know, it's 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 determined by the community, right? So this, this is what the medieval authors are telling us, right? So Augustine, um, you know, it's it's determined by the community and it's, uh, you know, and, and, and from a practical perspective, right, it has to be enforced by the state, which again, we're not, we're not afraid of that. We're not afraid of someone calling us, you know, a communist uh, because again, the state has legitimate authority from, you know, biblical teaching. Um, so can we have some kind of, uh, you know, um, bounds around just prices for things? I think that makes perfect sense. Right. And, and so I think the most sophisticated criticism you would get, uh, comes again from sort of, um, the libertarian side, which is to say that, you know, let the market set the price, uh, itself, let it deal with prices, let markets work. And then deal with the distributional consequences on the back end. So, in other words, if um, you know, if if uh, uh, let's say a toaster oven is a necessity, right, and the average toaster oven is too expensive for you know um, families in the bottom quintile of incomes, right, then what we do is let the market price toaster ovens, right, and even if it's too expensive for those people who are relatively poor, right, we call it a necessity and we just give them money to pay for it, right. And of course, the problem here is that, 
you know, <laughs> it actually matters if you work for the things you have, right? This is again, why Rare Novarum spends so much time talking about, you know, the head of a family, um, you know, working and providing for his family, right? We shouldn't be, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, we shouldn't have all of our needs taken care of for us by the state, right? I mean, that again, there, that's socialism, that's communism, right? Then we're talking about socialism. No, we're talking about work is a good thing. It shouldn't be everything you do. It shouldn't be the main thing in your life, right? The main thing in your life is your family and your community, right? Um, but it's, but it's important and it's a good thing for you to do it. And for you to, uh, you know, again, I mean, you want to talk about E. Michael Jones, right? The civilizational force in Europe were the Benedictines, right? <laughs> and they they taught uh, my ancestors in Germany how to work, right? Uh, you know, so, you know, these, you know, it's it's obviously a good thing. And, and when you work, you should be able to buy the things that you need, right? And again, I, I would say to these economists who are, who are going to tell me, Oh, well, let's, let's get, let the market price things and then deal with the distributional consequences. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I get that, you know, you want to make some argument about sort of efficiency of markets and wisdom of crowds or what, you know, however you want to say this, but, um, you know, if we, if we include, you know, if we, if we say that, you know, okay, GDP would be 10% lower, um, or 20% lower because we're not letting markets work, right? We're, we're imposing just prices on certain things. Okay, fine. Well, then maybe the redistributional thing needs to be, uh, you know, to <laughs> uh, not let uh, the top 1% accumulate such a massive amount of wealth. Again, a lot of times through the actions of the state themselves. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that everything that needs to be done to improve the world is more regulation, right? There's certainly uh, bad policies, bad regulations. I mean, Social Security, I think, single-handedly almost has completely obliterated the family, right? The, the, the extended family. It's evil. It's, it's disgusting. Um, and so getting rid of that as soon as possible would be fantastic in my mind. Um, so there's certainly points of agreement with the libertarians, but my goodness, uh, you know, the just price is more than just about, you know, GDP per capita for Pete's sake. Mm -hmm. Now, now the Austrians contend that Salam the Salamankan school is what sort of, yeah, invented the market price there's quotations in tom wood's book where he he's, he quotes various authors mm. in that school and says they say such things as well the, the the price should be determined by nothing but the market um mm. what do you what do you think of the salamankan school and that that assertion of the austrians yeah so uh on my my twitter account which is uh uh let's see at catholic econ and that's that's the Twitter account for my podcast. Um, I the other day I said something like uh, I ruffled some feathers saying, you know, the uh, if you put you shouldn't put the speculative writing of theologians and saints, no matter how wonderful they were, over the authority of the pope. Right. And the authority of the magisterium. Um, so, yeah. Did did the Salamancans come up with, you know, all these ideas? Sure, maybe so, right? But who cares? Just because you know they came up with this idea of how prices work, or how prices can make things efficient, right? Um, or how prices reflect, you know, scarcities very uh, precisely, right? And and demands very precisely. Okay, sure, right? I mean, that's that's like saying, okay, well, I discovered, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I discovered a very efficient killing machine, right? I discovered the the atom bomb. Well, you know, my discovery of that doesn't make 
me correct, right? I mean, it, who cares? You know, if, if the Pope is saying, you know, we should, and again, right, uh, changes in, should be introduced as soon as possible to rectify these wrongs, well, then who am I going to listen to, right? I'm not going to listen to some guy in Spain. I'm going to listen to the Pope because he's the Pope because I'm okay. Catholic. Okay. okay. Fair yeah. enough. Uh, I've, I've got a few objections I, sure. um, and I'd like to get to those and some other questions. Do you want to say more on some Catholic social teaching basics? Uh, we didn't talk. We could talk more about just wage or any other aspects of it. So I, the one thing I want to do before we do question, because I'd rather do questions is um, I want to, I want to finish a quote. So you in the, in the, in the links for this episode, you put my book review of, uh, Trent Horn and Catherine, Catherine Pakaluk's book, um, can a Catholic be a socialist? And in that, and in your interview earlier this week, there was the reading of a quote from JP two in solicitudo Rei socialis. I think I got that one, right. Um, that I think needs to be completely stated. So I'm going to stop when I, when I, when, you know, we heard, you know, I'm going to stop for the short part that we heard from these two sources and then I'm going to finish it. Okay. So, so JP two says the church's social doctrine doctrine is not a third way between liberal capitalism and Marxist collectivism. That's all we got. Right. So does that, does that make it seem like, distributism is a bad thing or that it's, you know, because it's some third position or whatever, because we can, you know, we can bring up complaints about, you know, Chancellor Dolphus or whatever, right. Does that mean that, you know, distributism is wrong or that, you know, the, the people who are attempting to sort of put uh, liberal capitalist ideas uh, sort of um, secondary, right. To the, the um, important, practical principles taught to us by the popes, does that make us bad or, or outside of things or whatever, right? No, of course, because here's, here's what we do, right? So we finish the quote, nor even a possible alternative to other solutions less radically opposed to one another. Rather, it constitutes a category of its own, nor is it an ideology, but rather the accurate formulation of the results of a careful reflection on the careful realities of human existence in society and in the international order, in light of faith and of the church's tradition. Right. So, again, yeah, it's it's not a third way between the two. No, it's it's understanding the the importance of the moral teaching of the church and putting that first when we have these conversations about policy and about how things ought to work and about how we ought to behave as fathers as members of communities um, we, we we're, we're putting the church's moral teaching first right and so maybe we're picking things that someone could characterize as part of Marxist collectivism or someone could characterize as part of liberal capitalism but when we are making these you know judgment calls on the the application of these policies we're doing it because the church tells us this is what's important Okay. I, I like that. That's good. That's good. Uh, well, speaking of Marxism, this is Marxism and socialism seem to be the biggest critiques, a, a an accusation of socialism. Here's uh, mm-hmm. here's what 
one chat says Levi's definition of distributism, the proper principle of Catholic social teaching, is not the same as Belloc. They never cite the Magisterium in distributist works. It was a Fabian invention. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, if that's what you think, then go read everything Belloc wrote um, and tell me that it's totally inconsistent with Catholic social teaching at the time. I mean, like, again, this is like, it's like I'm supposed to, um, again, are there better terms? Yes. Belloc said there are better terms, right? Chesterton didn't even like the term distributism. They were just trying to come up with something. It's not Fabian socialism. That's totally ridiculous. If you're saying that, then you're saying the that, that Heinrich Pesch was a Fabian socialist and that everything that the popes have told us, right? Belloc and Chesterton were trying to, were, tr were making probably a very honest effort to implement Catholic social teaching. And again, did some of it sound like Fabian socialism to somebody? F sure, whatever, right? But that doesn't make it Fabian socialism, right? It's, it's applying the church's teaching. Maybe we get it wrong, but we don't get it wrong because, you know, Tom Woods and, you know, Milton Friedman say it's wrong. Well, who cares about those guys, right? I care about what the Pope says. So okay, okay, it's, it's all, enough. it's all about, it's all about trade-offs. And, and again, yeah. I'm, I refuse to be pinned down to what two guys said a hundred years ago. Sure. There's yeah, so much more fair. literature. Yeah. yeah there's sure. so much okay. more to read. Now, yeah. what about the accusation that Marx's the uh, labor theory of value is mm -hmm. because just for viewers, the idea of the labor theory of value is the, the idea that every, all the value of an economy should be based mm -hmm. on labor because that is the a person doing something and that's the ultimate uh, value. Whereas like, I think if I'm not incorrect, GDP is more of a, uh, a value of, of productive money or, or maybe there's yeah. just more of a money-based value system versus the labor-based. So what would you say to that? Isn't that a Marxist idea? Well, so, you know, what's interesting about labor theory of value. So, uh, you know, I'm not a philosopher, so I didn't learn labor theory of value the way a philosopher is going to describe it, right? I learned it as this was the classical perspective on the way we, the way, um, you know, the way markets are supposed to be measured, right? So uh, Adam Smith, you know, also held to some version of the, th the labor theory of value. And the idea was simply that, you know, and this is how Marx got his, you know, surplus value perspective, right? And Pesch talks about surplus value, but Pesch, I think does a good job of, um, of, of making some very important changes to that concept. So, but the point here is that, um, you know, labor theory of value says that, um, you know, whatever it costs to make this thing, right? In terms of the, the physical, buying the physical things and then having someone glue them together or whatever, right? Whatever the process is for this, right? That is the value of this, that the market transactions, right? In other words, the valuations of the buyers and sellers have nothing to do with it, right? And so that's where Marx says, well, if it's in excess of the cost of it to be produced, then that is unjust, right? And that surplus value should be returned to the laborers, right? To the workers. Now, do I think labor is an important thing and it's a central part of the Pope's teachings or, you know, the, the Pope's teachings? Yeah, absolutely. Right. That doesn't mean I'm a Marxist. Okay. The, the labor theory of value, I think we, we have in modern economics, we have the value in use um, and the, the value in trade, right. Or the market value of something. And what's important here is that um, if we're going to understand these two things, 
Um, you know, the, the best example I think is this. Let's say that I'm in a desert and I'm, you know, I've been in the desert for three weeks and I'm almost dead. I'm crawling up to you, right? And you're right on the edge of the desert and you've got a bottle of water, right? And you say, oh, well, you know, you would be willing to pay $500 for this sip of water so that you can survive, right? Does that mean it's just for you to charge me $500 for that bottle of water? No, right? The value and use of that water is still the same as it was, you know, today, whenever I've, you know, got a cup right here, right? The use of that water, the value of that use of that water is completely different sometimes than what someone is willing to pay or willing to buy, right? And so Bernard Dempsey has a great paper on this. Um, and if, if someone wants to contact me, I'll, I'll send you the paper. Um, but it's very interesting. It's very difficult to come up with just this, this just price stuff. But just because it's difficult to come up with or there are you know judgment calls to be made doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done, right? Um, so that's where, yeah, that, that's where I would answer that. Okay. All right. Um, so any, any other questions? I, I'm going to, I got, I know, um, I got a few questions that I'll get to in just a second. I want to cover one more objection and, and chat, anybody in the chat wants to answer, ask any more objections or questions. Um, but here is a quotation from quad apostolici muneris. I think that's Leo. Yeah. Leo the 13th, 19, uh, 1878, uh, paragraph nine. It says, the socialists would destroy the right of property, alleging that the property and the privileges of the rich may be rightly invaded. The church, with much greater wisdom and good sense, recognizes the inequality among men must not be touched and stands inviolate. So the objection is that Leo XIII is saying here that the socialist wants to basically rob the rich and give to the poor using taxes or revolution or whatever. Um, and setting aside what you've already stated that not everything Belloc and Chesterton says is correct. And that's not really representative of the best of distributism taking that into consideration. Um, what would you say to the, the objection that distributism is trying to redistribute by doing this very thing that Leo the 13th condemns? Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing, right? So we have to, so that's perfectly good stuff to say, right? That makes total sense. I, I'm I'm 100% with Leo the 13th on that on that point. But how do we make that make sense with the other things that he've said? How do we make that sense with his how do we make that make sense with the things that he says in Rerum Novarum where he says that, you know, the the employer owes a just wage to the employee? How do we make that make sense with the concept of the universal destination of goods? Right? That that the idea that we're allowed to have, you know, these property rights systems to, to, you know, again, to rightly progress the economy, right? To make us all better off, hopefully. But that doesn't mean that, um, you know, <laughs> the universal destination of goods means that the property rights are not completely inviolate, right? Uh, John Paul II says um, that uh, property rights are under what he calls the social mortgage, right? So that's his term for... Um, you know, this idea that you know, this practical idea that you have to um, figure out how to respect the universal destination of goods and respect uh, private property. But of course, one of those is more fundamental than the other. Right. And so, yeah, obviously, we don't want Marxist revolution. Right. And we don't want 
the government unjustly um, taking from certain people and giving to others, right? Because we are all different, right? We all do have different ability levels and that not everyone should be, you know, uh, uh, we shouldn't level everything, right? But there are, again, we're talking about the basic necessities, right? Go back to what I was talking about with Warren Cass, right? The cost of thriving index, right? He's talking about the basics. He's talking about having a normal life, right? He's not talking about, you know, buying five BMWs and three boats, right? He's talking about procuring the normal things for life. And we're at the point where we're proof texting, you know, one line from an encyclical to try to defeat, you know, clear representation of the teaching, uh, you know, in multiple encyclicals over the last 150 years. I, it's just silly to me. Yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a good uh, answer. Um, <clears throat> it reminds me of when Saint Thomas talks about alms, and there's actually this very exact objection where he brings up. He says, "Well, you know, it's my own property. Why shouldn't I just be able to do whatever I want with it?" And Saint Thomas says, "Well, it is your own property, but." you don't own the exclusive right of the use of that property. So it is your property. There's an ownership of it, but there is a certain ownership that the poor have over your excess. So whatever you have above your necessities, above what you need, that belongs to the poor, according to St. Thomas and and the fathers of the church. So that's a very important point. You're not, you're not giving them something you own. You're giving them something that they, that they deserve, that they should have. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, here's here's one question. Um, Fox Popoli says, what is the what is the distributist position of public works that create value? Hmm. Public works that create value. Um, so I guess you're saying things like roads, right? Where. Yeah, here's um, it. another question. Can I put the same way? What role do the state play in the life of the nation? Like, because you're mm-hmm. saying you reject mm-hmm. the non-aggression principle, which is the, where the Austrians say that states should only basically prohibit and enforce violent mm-hmm. or against violence, fraud, mm-hmm. and theft. So that's kind of the big three, or whatever, if you will. Whereas you're saying sure. that the church says that the church, the state, has more responsibilities. Yeah. So I would say the 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 state has authority, right? And so that automatically takes the the non-aggression principle and throws it in the trash. So that that's that's the first step right now the other thing is that the state has responsibilities right we look to subsidiarity to understand uh and solidarity as well right the the sort of the goodwill uh you know one one willing the good for another right um but subsidiarity is very important here right so uh subsidiarity basically says that the um the larger or more distant political entity should not interfere in the appropriate work of lower entities, but should seek to facilitate coordination, right? So <clears throat> what is the what is the fundamental unit of society? It's the family, right? Period, end of story. Right. And so a lot of a lot of modern economics is sort of silly because it's all based on individuals. Right. So what is the fundamental unit of society? The family, right? So what should the family do? Well the family should uh, you know, uh, uh, provide for the basics of life, right? Should provide for what is, you know, sort of uh, 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 an ordinary kind of living in the society you live in, right? And to the extent that the family is not able to do all of that, right, then a larger body or a more distant body, right, like the the the, the town or the county that you live in, right, it has certain things that it must do. So, uh, you know, I'll, it, just 
empirically speaking in the US, right, we have um, county and state level coordination for schooling, right? Now, is that necessary? Is it better that the church does it? Is it better that it's not at home? Okay, yeah, maybe, right? But these are things that we can have discussions about where it's appropriate. What what sh what should role should the state play in the life of the nation? So, I mean, maybe if we want to go all the way up to the national level, right? So this this makes a ton of sense, um, like international policy, like international trade, right? Um, obviously, individual states or individual counties or families really don't have much concern over that. Like you know, in a democratic system like we have, where we have to vote. Okay, yeah, you're obligated to come up with some kind of reasoning for voting for who you're voting for, but um, it's not really your job to worry about international trade policy or, uh, you know, uh, the, the 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 high level discussions about war and international relations, right? So it's it's sort of we we use subsidiarity we use subsidiarity uh, to sort of understand what level you know, these things are appropriate to, but we also just as a practical point, and, and this is uh, more speculative on my end, but I mean, the reality is of, of subsidiarity is that, well, you know, somebody has to decide what's appropriate for each level. Right. And so obviously, ideally the church would tell us that, but um, you know, there are, uh, I, I think it's practical in some sense for the highest level of governance to have some kind of influence on what the other levels are able to do. Okay, absolutely. So I'm gonna this be my last question, and then um, you, I would okay. like to get your final thoughts. So we've so Sean Morrissey says, uh, if lenders do not charge interest, why would they lend? And then mm -hmm. he asks about does church prohibit all usury or just extraordinary usury? You did answer the second part earlier when you mm -hmm. said that all interest, which is charged intrinsic to the loan, is usurious. Period. But there mm -hmm. are extrinsic titles, extrinsic things that you discussed. There's a, there's a link, Sean, if you go to that, I'll put it in the show notes as well. The, the paper that Dr. Levi mentioned, which may clear that up a little bit. But the first question is if lenders do not charge interest, why would they lend? How do we even get a house at this point if we, if we can't do this? <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that the answer to a lot of these difficult questions is that we have to make a lot of changes. We can't just make one change right? Like one policy change isn't going to solve some of these more complicated issues. Um, but so if, if lenders don't charge interest, why would they lend? Well, um, again, this goes back to the idea of the Montes Pietatis, right? So in McCall's work, he, he discusses the idea that government bonds are not usurious because the interest charged on those bonds falls under the... Um, uh, it, it falls under the power of the state to tax, right? So this this idea of the state having authority is is uh, is very important uh, when we get into some of these issues. So, for instance, right? So the government could uh, fund a Montes Pietatis, right? I mean, uh, the state of North Dakota has a state bank, um, and the rates are set by the state. And um, you know, I, I would imagine that at least some of the capital comes from taxes, uh, not all of it, probably, but um, you know, that would be, that would be one way to do it, right. Uh, would be to create this lender, um, that is essentially financed, excuse me, whose capital is essentially financed by, uh, uh, you know, interest as taxation. Right. Um, but, um, you know, Christ says, um, you know, if, if, uh, your friend asks you for your shirt, uh, for his shirt, uh, you know, give him, give him your coat too. Right. Um, so, you know, 
why would we lend? Well, because we we love our brothers, right? That's why. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the Mons Pietatis, that it, it was basically a nonprofit organization mm-hmm. that was designed yeah. to just help people who are in need, basically. The let me, yeah, yeah, let me throw another thing in here. So I, I did my PhD research on cooperatives, and I think one of the one of the w- most wonderful things that we could use more of and, and to a, a, at least push things in the right direction would be to use the uh, credit union more often, right? So a credit union... Um, I'm, I'm an owner of the union itself. I'm not just a borrower in a transaction with a bank, right? So the credit union itself is, is it's a, it's a group of us putting money together and then the credit union itself doles out a loan, right? So that's, that's a way for a sort of civil society approach to, uh, you know, making a loan that you would need to have. Excellent. Uh, any final thoughts on distributism, Catholic social teaching? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my, my thing is, is, um, do yourself a favor and read the social encyclicals. Read Rerum Novarum, read Quadragesimo Anno, read Centesimus Annus, um, read the whole thing, and ask yourself, right, if you're, if you're more on this libertarian side of things, ask yourself if there's not a very plain, consistent teaching in there about some very important things that we are told uh, often uh, by, uh, you know, the more libertarian types that we, we are not allowed to do, right? Socialism is very clearly and obviously condemned. Um, and one of the, I think, I think it wouldn't be too much to call this an excuse. One of the excuses made to uh, push everything into some kind of libertarian night watchman state or anarcho-capitalist or whatever is something that JP2 says in Centesimus Anus. Um, you know, he says, if by capitalism, we mean, you know, this, um, you know, this free for all that hurts everybody, right. Then we don't want that. But if we, if we're talking about capitalism as, uh, and again, I don't, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but essentially he says, you know, if, if, if by capitalism, we mean, you know, this set of market transactions that occur within a strong juridical framework, right? So what is that strong juridical framework, right? What is that, what does that strong juridical framework look like? Well, it looks like things like, uh, you know, a family wage. It looks like implementing the just price. It looks like a, uh, a ban on usury. It looks like uh, reinstituting authentic community and the, the importance of the, the extended family, right? It looks like abolishing silly things like Social Security that just degrade the family, right? I didn't have much time to talk about that, but... Um, uh, check out my podcast. I'm going to talk about social security in the next week or two, maybe. Um, these are, these are, uh, you know, this is, this is very clear. I think if you read these encyclicals, um, then, um, you know, an octogesima adviens, or I don't know how to say it, but you know, that that's another one to read. Um, there, there, we are told what this strong juridical framework is supposed to look like. And it's not Milton Friedman's night watchman state. Absolutely. Yeah. I just, uh, let me just read this whole thing real quick. The quote from Centesimos Anos. Thanks. Paragraph 42. And so this is 1991, fall of the Soviet communists. And he says, quote, can it perhaps be said that after the failure of communism, capitalism is the victorious social system and that capitalism should be the goal of the countries now making efforts to rebuild their economy and society. And then he talks about should, should the third world so-called adopt capitalism. And then he says this, 
Quote, if by capitalism is meant an economic system which recognizes the fundamental and positive role of business, the market, private property, and the resulting responsibility of the means of production, as well as free human activity, creativity in the economic center, then the answer is certainly in the affirmative, even though it would perhaps be more appropriate to call it business. Okay, so he talks about some other terms, but then he says, but if by capitalism is meant a system in which freedom in the economic sector is not circumscribed with a strong juridical framework, which places it at the service of human freedom in its totality, and which sees it as a particular aspect of that freedom, the core of which is ethical and religious, then the reply is certainly negative. And then he goes on to talk about how, yes, Marxism has failed, but there's also the similar issues in the West, in the capitalist West, where he talks about Mm -hmm. alienation. He distinguishes between exploitation, where people are starving, whatever, the -hmm. so-called wage slavery. But then he distinguishes that with alienation, which is the the prevalent social ill in uh, the Western capitalist societies that he he identifies. Um, So that's the, any any further, do you want to comment more on that? Or is that? Yeah, I mean, I I just think, I just think that, you know, you, if you read that in the context of, you know, I mean, he's, it's called centesimus honest because it's the hundredth anniversary of rerum novarum, right? It, It used to be the case that there was a celebration every 10 years after rerum novarum, because it was so important. That encyclical was so important in 1891. And so, you know, if we, we think about JP2's writing in Centesimus Sanos in light of that, in light of the fact that he's he's celebrating Rerum Novarum, right? So again, we, you know, and he says, he talks about, you know, in service to, you know, sort of like, right, that the, that uh, freedom is this, is this religious concept, right? So again, it's not, it's not a bunch of atheists in, you know, <laughs> the, the enlightenment, telling us that we should just be able to do whatever the heck we want as long as we're not killing someone, right? I mean, that's just silly, right? This, this is absolutely not what the Catholic Church talks about in terms of what is a uh, justifiable moral system, right? So that strong juridical framework has to look like, you know, what the popes have have told us it needs, you know, it, it, there's certain outcomes that need to be uh, taken into account. Absolutely. Thanks for so, reading that, by the way. <laughs> that was the yeah, one I didn't have. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great that's a great consideration to talk about. Um, so, Dr. Levi, thanks so much for coming on. Everybody take Thank a look you. at Leo Institute. The link's below in the show notes, but it's leoinstitute.org. Leoinstitute.org for Catholic social teaching. What are your plans for the Leo 9 Institute? Man, we got a lot of stuff coming. Um, we're going to continue to put out policy papers, which are going to be, which are these longer uh, sort of more academic-y kind of discussions. Um, we're going to have um, some more position papers, which is meant to be short and meant to be, you know, us staking out a position on a specific topic with the eye toward, you know, sending this to a politician or something like that. We have our 2020 presidential uh, election guide that we're going to be doing an update on. Um and, you know, I, I can't say much more, but, but we've got a lot of big stuff in the works. And so um, hopefully, you know, uh, our day jobs uh, allowing, right. Uh, Anthony Stein, who does return to tradition. Uh, he's, he's, um, he's our interim director right now. 
So uh, he's also uh, greatly involved. He's, he's uh, finishing up his PhD in uh, political philosophy, I think. So, um, you know, the two of us with, with our uh, five research associates we have right now, working on a lot of cool stuff and, and we're going to have a lot more uh, coming. Oh, that's right. We have a magazine uh, that will be out where we sort of solicited articles from a range of people. Um, and so we're going to do a magazine that will be out in September. We're planning on to do that quarterly. Um, and then we've got some other big stuff coming probably around the first of the year, I'm hoping. Excellent. Yeah. So everybody check that out. You can also follow Dr. Levi at, at Catholic Econ. And that is the, the what's the name? Is the name, what's the name of the podcast? Catholic Economics? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yep. Catholic Economics. It's on all the podcast platforms and it's also on YouTube. Excellent. Okay. Well, Dr. Levi, we always close with Our Father. So let's offer up an Our Father for, especially for the poor in, in this yes. COVID-1984 situation, whatever our economic persuasion within the bounds of orthodoxy, we need to think about the poor first. And like we talked about, your excess wealth belongs to them. So be sure to help your neighbor, especially the elderly who can't get out or may be really at risk for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who are losing their jobs because of this situation. So let's remember them and let's offer up an Our Father for an economy that gives greater glory to God. Great. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>